Sidewalk Audio and PatioBooks.com presents The Prince of Hazel and Oak A podcast novel by John Lenahan Book 2 of the Shadow Magic series Read by the author Chapter 36 Una's Book I swam to shore, almost drowning when my robe dragged me under. I was sure I told it to float. I thought about Gracie. I think she would have come if I pushed her, but to be honest, I really didn't want her with me. I was going into such uncertainty. I didn't want to subject my innocent, glowing angel to that kind of danger and chaos. I could almost imagine her standing in the middle of a battlefield saying, Why is everybody being so mean to each other? It was better that she was with Matron back in her grotto. I just hoped she didn't catch too much grief for helping me escape and giving me the dragon's blood. If I was honest, I was also glad I didn't have to explain her to Essa. Of course, I couldn't be sure that Essa and Yogi had gotten out of the Brownie Lands alive. For that matter... I couldn't be sure that any of my loved ones were safe. I started to fret over all the time that I had lost and swam harder. My robe increased its buoyancy and I bodyboarded the surf right onto the shore. The sun was newly up as I stood on the beach and rubbed the stinging salt water out of my eyes with the sleeve of my warm, insta-dry robe. I looked around and what I saw almost made my already queasy stomach bring up everything I had ever eaten. I was in the reed lands. There was no mistaking the foul vegetation. This was the land that had been created when Kielty had first taken his choosing. The last time I had been here, Fergal had been almost drawn and quartered by living vines and a band of feral banshees. The same ones who destroyed the hazel lands had used me and my friends for archery practice. A shout made me scamper into a mangle of trees, the likes I had only ever seen in B-grade horror movies with names like the re-return of the swamp creature. The trees didn't provide much cover, but I might not have been spotted if I hadn't instructed my robe to darken so as to blend in with the vegetation. As the troop of soldiers came towards me, my annoyingly disobedient robe went practically fluorescent orange. Then... When I tried to run, I found that some of the vines had wrapped around my ankles. I couldn't have gotten away even if there had been anywhere to go. As they came closer, I noticed that they were brownies, and the one in front was an old acquaintance of mine. He stepped right up to me, wearing a smug smile that only a brownie mother could love. Hi, Frank, I said. Did you get the knife I sent you? The soldier's uniform did nothing to make the brownie prince look any older than the kid I had reprimanded for stealing my shoes so many months before. He pointed to his ankle where the sheath held a green-handled throwing knife to his leg. Yeah, I did, he said, and as a thank you, he clocked me in the head with his banta stick. There are many times when little situations remind me of how much I miss Fergal. I must say that waking up from a concussion tied to a post was much more fun with my cousin bound to the pillar next to me. 
At least, this place was a cut above my usual stinky dungeon. I was tied to the center pole of a pretty opulent tent. This was no traveling structure. Or, if it was, then somebody was doing some serious heavy lifting. There was a full oak-framed bed in the corner, a complete eight-seat dining table set, and an office adorned with a collection of peacock quill pens. When the occupant of these posh digs came into the room, I wasn't surprised. I was expecting him. He stood in front of me with his right hand tucked into his shirt like Napoleon. On his face he wore a smirk that made me want to slap him, but then all of his expressions made me want to do that. Hello, Uncle. I was so worried that we weren't going to get to meet this trip. You know how difficult it is finding time to see all of one's relatives. I had been practicing that line for the entire time I had been waiting for Kielty to arrive. I hoped that the bravado of it would hide the bowel-clenching fear that was ripping through my body. Why are you here, and how did you get here? I was hoping to borrow some money for university. You know, Dad's such a skinflint. He wouldn't even pay for a backhand across my face shut me up. While I fought to remain conscious, I said, I could have sworn uncles were supposed to give you hugs and kisses when they see you. I don't want to hurt you. I don't believe you, I said. The time for jokes was over. In fact, I think that's exactly what you want to do. I think... This interrogation is an annoyance. I think what you really want to do is kill the nephew that made you a lefty. Am I right? Kilty took his wrist from the shirt and with his remaining hand scratched the stump that I had created. Then he dragged a chair from across the room and sat down in front of me. You think me a monster? No. Monsters have a choice. That's just the way they are. I think... I think you're a demon. This brought a look of incredulity to my uncle's face. You think I have choice? You think any of us has choice? You of all people should know that we are all just pawns of Una's prophecies. I don't make me sick, I said. You killed your son, my cousin, my friend. You, you did that. Don't you dare try to pass off that responsibility to some old fortune teller. Old fortune teller? Kilty laughed. You have no idea, do you? He stood and walked over to his desk. From his pocket, he took a key and opened a golden box, from which he took a leather-bound manuscript. He sat down again and placed the book at my feet. These are Una's predictions. She was truly omniscient. We have no choice but to do what she knew must be done. Is that why you killed her? To get that book? No. I had the book before I killed her. You sound proud of yourself. No, he said. Not proud, only resigned. You see, when I had seen only twenty summers, I stole into Una's room and found this book. As if guided by fate, I opened to the page that foretold my ultimate destiny. 
When I looked up, Una was standing beside me. She told me that if she were to be allowed to leave, that she would tell my father what I had done, and he would banish me. Then she took the book and opened it to the page that foretold her death. She handed the book to me and laid down on the bed. As I stood over her, she handed me a pillow, and I smothered her, just as she had written. There was none of your precious choice. You could have chosen not to kill her, I said. You can think that, if it helps you to sleep. I know better. So did Una tell you to destroy the whole land with your golden circle? No, that was my idea. I thought, if I wiped clean the slate of the land, then finally Tirnanog would be free of the cage that Una had put us in. I laughed at that. So you wanted to free the land by destroying it? I think if you asked, a few of us would have objected to that. Your precious free will is an illusion. You two are doomed to follow Una's puppet play, whether you know it or not. So you're back in the land-destroying business again? No. No, I have learned my lesson. Una's will is not to be denied. I now only seek to regain the Oak Throne. As long as I am king of Castle Dor, I will be safe. That is why I must do this. He reached into a pouch on his belt and took out the gold-rimmed glass vial. I quickly looked down to where Gracie had sealed the vial of dragon's blood into my robe. There was a slit cut into the living fabric. Kilti undid the stopper and began to tilt. No! Please, I begged. He stopped. Turlo told me that you sought dragon's blood, but he told me that you failed. Where did you get this? I stole it, I lied. I didn't want Gracie to be dragged into all of this. From where? Duh, from a dragon. He looked as though he was going to hit me again, but then he just said, No matter. My spies in Castle Dor have told me that Oisin is much worse. It will not be long. Then he lifted the corner of the carpet and poured the blood onto the dirt below. I tried to scream. I tried to tell him that I was going to kill him, but nothing would come. As if I had been punched in the solar plexus, I had no breath. When I finally found that I could speak, I found that I had no strength to do it. You can only lose hope so many times before life is no longer worth fighting for. I dropped my head to my chest and waited for the sword that I knew was going to come, not even caring. I think I actually dozed off then. I had a vision that I was dead, riding a dragon off into a heavenly sunset filled with red and gold clouds and beams of light like you see in the paintings on the walls of Italian churches. I sputtered awake as hot liquid slipped down my throat and exploded my senses. 
I opened my eyes to see Kielty holding a bottle of Pachin. Uh, I thought you had killed me already, I said with the husky voice of an alcohol-burnt throat. I have not decided what to do with you yet, he said, sitting back in his chair. I have won, you know. The brownies and the banshees are loyal to me. The fairies without your father will splinter back into a squabbling mess. The pukas will all turn again into dogs once I destroy the Tree of Knowledge. That only leaves the imps and the elves. The elves, as usual, will scamper up their trees to wait and see what happens, and the imps, well, the imps fight like farmers. We will stop you. Or, my uncle said, you could help me. You know I'm right. You know I will win. You don't have to like me, but you can see that if you stand by my side, we can avoid this war. You can save your friends and the land much heartache. What do you know about heartache? You have to have a heart for that. Kilty stood and returned Una's book to its box. Without looking around, he said, when one's entire life is presented to you in an afternoon, then one experiences a lifetime of pain in a day. Oh, ho, nephew, I know heartache. He turned back to me. Think about what I have said. And then he left. As much as I... Didn't want to do as he commanded. Thinking is pretty much the only thing you can do when left tied to a pole. I didn't believe it possible, but I felt a little sorry for my uncle. I tried to imagine what life would be like if I knew everything that was going to happen to me. And I had to admit, it would be a nightmare. Especially if my life was like Kielty's. I also had to admit he had a Good point about my family and friends being in trouble. Things did not look good. I wanted to laugh at his cliched, join me and together we can rule the universe speech, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't tempted. Don't get me wrong, the idea of spending any time with Kielty made my stomach churn, but the thought of all my loved ones getting massacred in the Hazellands made it churn more. I had seen the young troops that Dahi had put together. I had trained with them, and if I was brutally honest, they weren't up to much. They were no match for a well-trained army of banshees and brownies. If I was certain that my friends were going to be killed, wasn't it my duty to save them? But then I imagined Essa and Dahi's faces as I rode in at Kielty's side. It wouldn't make any difference. They would never give up. The only difference was that before they died, they would hate me, and I was pretty sure Essa would find a way to haunt me for the rest of my life. Kielty knew what he was doing. He left me alone to think, and that was the cruelest cut of all. In the end, I came to the conclusion that, preordained or not, Kielty was a monster, and I could never join with him. I failed my father. My friends were almost certainly doomed, and I would soon die. Kilty didn't need to torture me. I was doing it to myself. I would like to be able to say that at that moment I welcomed death, but the truth is, 
I was afraid. I decided that when my uncle returned that I would accept his offer just so I could survive the day and maybe find a chance to escape later. You were not thinking of accepting his offer, were you? I heard a familiar voice say from behind me, and then I felt the ropes being cut from my wrist. Not me. I said, as a spark of hope returned to my soul and blood returned to my hands. I silently groaned as I stood and turned to see a very welcome face covered with camouflage dirt. I myself would have accepted, he said, his white teeth shining in his dark face, and then looked for a chance to escape. I started to say, actually, that's what I was going to do, but then just decided to say, that's why they call you Master Spidog. I bowed and then hugged him. I think we should get out of here, he said, crossing the room and opening Kielty's wardrobe. What are you looking for? You need to wear something that's a bit darker than that bathrobe. Hold on. Let me try something. I concentrated. This time, the robe cooperated, and it turned dark bark brown. Impressive, the old archer said while throwing me a pair of my uncle's shoes. I was still putting on the left boot when he grabbed me by the collar and I hopped out of the slit he had cut in the back of the tent. There was more moon than we would have liked as we tried to keep the vegetation between us and the roving soldiers. Spidog held a staff but no bow. Seeing him without a bow was like seeing a zebra without stripes. It made me want to ask what had happened to him in the U-lands, but this was no place for a chat. He led me through the spooky vegetation and pointed into the gloom. In the distance, I made out a horse corral with two guards. We snuck in closer, then Spidog offered me a knife and pointed to the guard on the left. I looked at the deadly weapon. Can I have your stick? I whispered. His face showed his displeasure at the breach of silence, then he surprised me by saying, No! can't just stab a man in the back. Connor, we are at war. Why won't you let me use the stick? Because it is mine. Now, do you want to get out of here or not? I knew by the tone that this was the end of the conversation. I looked at the knife, and as I crept up on the guard, I repeated to myself, we are at war. We are at war. But the closer I got, the less my resolve became. While I was still in the open, the clueless soldier bent down, picked up a rock, and batted it into the night with his staff. This was just a kid. And then, when I got closer still, I realized that it was a kid I knew. What were the odds? Like he was the only brownie in all of the Reedlands, it was Frank. I came up behind him and placed the knife on the front of his neck, but I couldn't kill Make a sound, Frank, and I'll slit your throat from ear to ear. Frank let loose a tiny, childish squeal. That would be a sound. Would you like to try me again? I took his silence for a no. I instructed him to plant a staff in the ground and take a step forward. I held the knife to his back and picked up his staff. You really should have said thank you, I whispered as I clocked him in the side of his head. He went down with a slow wobble of the knees. 
I took back the green-handled knife, but then had an image in my mind's eye of poor worried Jesse and replaced it in his sock. I patted him on the head. Stay out of trouble, Frank. You have been listening to The Prince of Hazel and Oak, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Music gratefully provided by Lunasa. You can hear more of their fabulous music at www.lunasa.ie. That's L-U-N-A-S-A dot I-E. You can learn more about Shadow Magic and its author on www.shadowmagic.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. Shadow Magic, book one of the series, is available from HarperCollins in paperback, EPUB, and Kindle formats.